Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Podside Picnic. This is Pete, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Connor, and we are going to talk to you today about Joe Walton's Among Others. Among Others is, well, on one level, it's the weirdest book I've ever seen, actually on a number of levels, because it's a fantasy novel uh that leans heavily on science fiction, which is something I've never seen before. Um, it is about a uh, a young woman going through school in Wales and then England, um, and her dealing with uh, magical warfare with members of her family, in addition to trying to navigate uh, a boarding school. And um, it resonated with me a great deal. And from my limited conversations with Connor about this, it seems like it resonated with him, too. So, Connor, how did you pick this book? I don't know where it came from for you. That's an interesting question, uh, Pete. I think this book is not, to give some people some background on this, I guess back in 2010 when it came out, it won the Hugo and Nebula. There's a long tradition of, you know, notable books winning both. Um, so it has that pedigree, and it's relatively recent. Uh, however, I just happened to see it at the bookstore, and when I was perusing the sci-fi selection at McNally Jackson down in Soho, shout out to them. They're a great bookstore if you're ever in that part of Manhattan. Um, check them out. They have a great fiction selection, especially literary. Um, anyway... I, I saw it, I looked at the sort of premise of it, and I was also very charmed by the voice initially um, as I when I picked it up, and I was like, you know what, uh, this is a little bit off kilter, like, I, I always want to mix things up and not just do the hardcore sci-fi canon, although, again, preview for folks who may or may not have heard us talk about this on the Patreon recently, like, we're probably going to move towards doing some themed months around really major writers and major works. Um, but this is not that, you know, not to take anything away from Joe Walton, but she's, she's a relatively recent arrival and she's not on par with Le Guin or Frank Herbert, et cetera. In fact, as Pete alluded to, a lot of this book is about the characters, uh, incredible reverence and worship of some of these writers, uh, Heinlein and Le Guin are way up there for her. So is Roger Zelazny. A lot of the book is about this character encountering and reading voraciously, through the sci-fi canon and also sci-fi that was new when she was a kid. And this book is set in 1979, uh, kind of right in the heart of the Thatcher era, the Thatcher era in England and Wales. What's interesting is that a lot of the sort of post-industrial decline of that period and the problems of the Thatcher era are alluded to this book. But unlike a lot of writers from that period, Walton, despite having seemingly lefty leanings, has not gone out of her way to rag on Thatcher, which is interesting. And now I'm rambling a little bit, but you can see why I found this book interesting just picking it up. I think someone can correct me on this, but I think it does count as 
if not strictly YA, I think it counts as so-called middle grade because the the protagonist is in that age range. And I think you could argue that it's pitched towards a younger audience uh, because it is a coming of age story that is very much for and of teens. Um, you can yell at me if you think that's wrong, but um, I'm glad we did pick it. And I, I think it's a nice kind of recent waypoint for us to hit before we move on to doing like a potential Dune Month or whatever. I mean, Pete, how did you feel about this book? Well, it um, it was like a goose stepping on my grave. Um, the, the character in this book was about six years difference in age from me. And they were reading the same books as me at the same time. And occasionally in the same freaking order. Like when those when those Amber books came out from Rogers Elasny and the, and she was getting them as they were hitting the bookstore, that was me, man. I was doing that, and I had some of the same thoughts about these books. I wondered about the relationship between uh, Delaney's book Triton and uh, uh, the Dispossessed, and just having someone like I. I guess I need to say I'm following in her footsteps. She's not following in mine because she's the one who wrote it down. But finding all of these weird points of connection, which, I mean, they've got to be at least semi-autobiographical. Like, no, nobody can convincingly simulate a love for hundreds of science fiction books like she is. Oh, I'm sure this is incredibly autobiographical on many levels, including possibly the abusive family. Uh, I haven't read up on Joe Walton too much. She even says, after there's a, there's a brief sort of prologue um, where the sister of the protagonist, the twin sister of the protagonist, who will be dead for most of the book, is still alive. And at the end of that prologue, prologue italicized uh there's sort of an aside saying this is basically a memoir but then of course it launches into being a fantasy novel so it can't strictly speaking be a memoir or so we would say and here's where it must be said pete what you're saying is so great because you sense an incredible uncanniness and a sort of a purposeful sense of coincidence in this book and this is a book that's about a magic system where magic is real and fairies are real or spirits she calls fairies are real but it's not so much about like casting epic spells or having incredible like direct power to do things. It's about having this kind of mysterious cryptic influence on the world and you never know where the causality is and maybe the magic that you did caused something or maybe it didn't and maybe the fairies are tricking you. And so what you're feeling is very much the sense of magic that this book posits, which I think is fantastic. Oh, honestly, you picking this book out could tie into that magical theory. I mean, it's very much like, God, I don't know, Santeria, or certainly street magic, where everything is, like, you, if you, if you, you don't get to choose how, what you, what you try and make via magic, uh, uh, brings itself forth into the world. Like she is, she is lonely and isolated, and so she basically like does a help spell for for. There's got to be a better way to put it, and it it basically ends up putting this book club into her life, and she ends up connecting to people through that. Would that have happened anyway? And that's one of the more interesting things about this. It was late in the book where I finally was convinced that she wasn't just crazy. Ah, interesting. So you mean, even on the terms this book posits, where it's like, um, you know, she can see fairies, the fairies are 
certainly magical beings. They're immortal, but they they sort of they don't have real power to act in the world. Which, by the way, as an aside, I was I was recommending this to a friend and describing that magic system to her, and she said that that's like Shinto. And I don't know a lot about Shinto, but um, she said that yeah, like in Shinto, you have a lot of spirits and ambient magic, and again, causality is very cryptic, and the spirits can't really do anything, but they're very present. Um, and that's what sort of what's going on in this book. I think it does match up with a lot of pagan traditions. Um, oh yeah, you know, in, in in that way. But are you saying that the way you were reading this book was that we, we we were supposed to think, or that you couldn't help but think that this was about a disturbed young woman? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I think that up to a certain point, it was left deliberately ambiguous. Like, anything magical that happened was strictly from the point of view of this young girl. And it wasn't until Wim saw it, too. The She meets a boy, guys. Uh, about three-fourths of the way through the book, um, there's finally corroboration for what she believes. From, uh, from another party. And up until then, I was sort of braced because I, I like this, this character. I appreciated her ability and willingness to throw down. And uh, it's like she's one of those people that will, will shout no when the whole world is screaming yes. And I love that about her. I mean, just the idea that this, this girl, like she saved the world at some point and nobody knows about it and nobody acknowledges it. And she doesn't give a crap about that. And like, what a, what a compelling, interesting human being! And I was very nervous that she would have just been damaged. And I think, yes, she is damaged, but there's more going on than that. And I'm I'm grateful for that because it would have been possible for this writer to write a bad check on the storyline if they wanted to, but they didn't. They 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 went with their original premise, which was uh, which was marvelous. Right. So you mentioned one of the most interesting things about this novel. So when we first meet this character in the prologue, and again, the twin is still alive, the fairies have told them that they can destroy. And again, this is the sort of the beginning of deindustrialization. This is the late 70s. The, uh, the fairies told them they can destroy this polluting uh, factory in their little Welsh valley by doing this particular act. And they do it. And they're like, oh, I thought that the, because they've read Lord of the Rings, they're like, oh, I thought the factory would like explode into flame or something. The factory just stands there. And then, you know, like months later, it's like factory closing down, jobs being lost in like the classic deindustrializing neoliberal way. And it's like, ah, so the magic worked or did it or who the hell knows. Um, and yeah, so it starts with that. And then as you've said, the structure of the book is very interesting. And because, this, especially because this is early work by Joe Walton, I would, I think relatively early at least, I'm not, I can look back on our publishing track record, but. Um, uh, keep talking, I'll do that. Okay. Any, anyway, it has, there, as Pete said, when we get to the book, the twin sister has been killed and the mother, so she has an abusive mother who's a witch, who in the mind of this protagonist at least was trying to do some nebulous things that would turn her into sort of a dark queen, sort of a classic ascendant. Um, you know, evil supernatural figure and the de defeating the mother in that effort. And again, the mother is also classically abusive. She's emotionally abusive and hits her kids and is a mess and all the other things. Um, de defeating her in some way costs the life of the twin sister in a car crash. And then we come to basically the guardianship of this young woman. Like she's, she's run away. She's been in a foster home and now she's, um, her legal guardian is her biological father who lives with his 
also kind of witch-like sisters who essentially own him in a more in a snobby English estate called the Old Hall. Uh, and he's a little bit different because, like, his father is, like, a Polish-Jewish refugee from the Holocaust, and he's very much owned by these women who I think are his half-sisters or whatever. It's it's kind of confusing. But um, And then this girl gets sent to boarding school. And again, this is sort of inverted Hogwarts. She goes from this high-stakes magical epic to a very non-magical mid-range English boarding school. Um, you know, and... <laughs> This really, as one of the blurb says, this this the Publishers Weekly review, I think, said like this turns the magical boarding school story inside out, and it absolutely does in all ways, because without giving away too much about the ending, uh, again we transition from a high stakes magical epic that's off screen, and so what I was getting to earlier was to say that I feel like a lot of that was written out or as part of the story, and the decision was made at various stages to excise a lot of that and give us just the boarding school arc. Which the boarding school arc does involve the, the the mother. It involves lots of lots of fairies and magic, but it's ultimately about this protagonist not choosing to commune with magic in the way that her mother does, not choosing to commune with the fairies as intensely as she could. Again, not to spoil it, but it sort of is the story of her rejecting the magical world after this huge epic arc she's already had. It's the story of her choosing life, uh, of choosing to grow up and have a boyfriend. Um, am I doing this justice, Pete? Yes. Yes, um, I, I, I kind of, I kind of want to drag this conversation down a rabbit hole. So feel free to to struggle with me on this, Connor. But I, um, when I read this book, it's very difficult for me to not at at least reflect on my own childhood. Um, I think, like a lot of people in the seventies and eighties growing up, um, I felt a certain amount of isolation. And one of the things I did to uh, bulwark myself against that was to like plunge into science fiction book after fantasy book after science fiction book. I mean, on a lot of levels, those were my friends. And Joe Walton's character here has explicitly made that choice. She's like, rather than, rather than, you know, focus on communing with the fairies rather than, you know, these other things. I'm going to have these books and that's enough. And she ends up getting more, as you, as you said, like she ends up finding a boyfriend. She forms a connection with people through these book clubs. But her initial sacrifice is, well, I'll go to some weird school in a place I've never been before. But as long as I have access to these books, that's going to be cool. And it is... It's a sad choice, but it's a very recognizable one. And I think given her backstory and what she's seen has happened, both to her mother and to that factory, I think I think it's an ennobling one. Like what a like what a set of guts on her. Like she she discovers she has the ability to do like powerful and horrific things and instead of getting power drunk like her mother she constantly refers to the fact it's like well magic may not be evil but it doesn't look like it's good for you right that is all and it's fascinating i mean first of all before we move on how much did you love that the grand adventure again this is pre-internet and characters are like getting like characters they form a book club to discuss this stuff um they're getting ideas for the next books they want to buy from which books have, like, other titles listed in them. And, like, I'm sure you remember doing all of that. Oh, that is so old school, yes. Right, and the magazines that exist that talk about science fiction are so precious to them. And, like, it is sobering 
to like sit here now as an internet person and be like, we take this all this amazing shit for granted. But um, how much did you love, by the way, that the great adventure that they all might get to go on if they can save up their money and make it happen? They all might get to go to Glasgow for a science fiction convention. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it was, was great, right? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, I was charmed by it. It was, uh, I mean, it, like, that almost felt like the Goonies or something to me, right? And, and I think this book is one that I would try to shove into the hands of as many kids I, as I knew who liked, say, Harry Potter, which this is, of course, riffing on and inverting. Yeah. Um, and does not, you know, doesn't mention Harry Potter because that's that's before this book's the setting. This Harry Potter exists when this book was writ was uh, is set, but like. It's an antidote to Harry Potter because, as you said, like what what Harry Potter creates is what a lot of these stories create is a feeling of wist like they are an antidote, um, especially some of the more esoteric ones, not not the ones that are quite as massive as Harry Potter. But like, I think the risk you can tell me how you feel about this. The risk, of course, is the sense of wistfulness and inadequacy that you have when it's like, well, this is my escape from my my deficiencies in the real world. This is how I escape from it. But it's also like there's you can't help but be wistful that like you're not going to be a chosen one. You're not actually in this world that you're imagining. You're you're actually you're exiled from that world. You can escape into it purely imaginatively, but you can't really participate in it. And you're never going to be as worthy as these aspirational characters you're reading about. And what Joe Walton is doing so brilliantly is reverse engineering and saying that and doing it in a very convincing and sympathetic way and saying like, hey, maybe you don't actually want to be that aspirational chosen one figure, maybe being that would be the true curse. And we can actually work through some of those feelings and be like, there is a path for someone like you who just wants to have access to that wholesome imagination. There is a path for you to just choose life and be a normal person. And that can be just as ennobling and empowering. And God, that is if great. If not more so. I thought more so. That is so brilliant and so great. And I really appreciate what Joe Walton did here. And I really think this should this book should be given to kids uh, who are maybe overdosing on some of those those epics? Is that a fair fair statement? Yes, and I know the book that I would I would attach to it to hand them the duology, and that is uh, China Mieville's Unlundung. Um, it's a it's a book about uh, sort of a secret world within London, and there's this chosen girl and her best friend, who's this uh, uh, a Pakistani refugee girl, just ends up happening to come along, and it turns out that the chosen girl is bloody useless. <laughs> And uh, the the immigrant girl who just sort of gets swept up in it is the one who matters. Nice. So another way of of deconstructing the the chosen one, which so plagues uh, all of these stories. Oh yeah, I one of the reasons why I'm more interested in a science fiction pod than a fantasy pod. I love both genres very very much, but um, fantasy novels tend to fall into certain tracks and those tracks are things that I strongly disapprove of. And we've talked about it earlier on the pod, like the whole idea of, of monarchy or people being superior by virtue of their bloodline is revolting to me. And the idea that it's enforced again and again and again in the majority of these books, I think, is disgusting. Why do we do it to ourselves? And here's an example of a book who doesn't play that game. It's like it reacts to that sort of thing. And I was I was charmed by this book on so many levels. Like it's like I wanted to 
I wish I'd have had a friend like this character when I was that age. I yeah. Mean, that's how I felt about this book. Well, you would have been in love with her, Pete, if you'd met her. <laughs> I, God damn it. You're absolutely right. Because she would have been a couple of years older than me, too. I mean, yikes. <laughs> right. I, and and the, there's so many... I mean, this character... Walton does a great job grounding this character, um, who we're not told is exceptionally pretty, who has a probably permanent disability because of um, the car accident that killed her sister that was supposedly caused by dark magic. Like, she's not, in in no way is she, like, a shining, uh, you know, like, perfectly gorgeous, aspirational person. Um, and, and yet, she's also not, like, she's, on the other side of things, she's not, like, fully downtrodden. Like, certainly she gets teased at boarding school, but she deals with it pretty deftly, I would say. She's good at navigating it. Like, it's not like she's, you know, being stuffed under the Dursley stairs, like in Harry Potter. Like, it's not nothing that, <laughs> nothing that extreme either. So it's just... She's very much a real, believable person. Maybe a little bit uh, on the wry, clever side for somebody who's only fifteen. But then again, I've known some pretty wry fifteen-year-olds in my time. So, like, it's it's amazing how you you can create a, a speculative fiction, a, a simultaneously science fiction and fantasy. Which, by the way, at one point, um, talking about sort of like the power of industry and the world that she lives in. And the demystification going on around, on around her, the character the the character says like, you know, my sister and I when we were little because of the fairies that we met, we thought we lived in a fantasy world, but really we live in a science fiction world, which I thought was a very uh, a very pointed and poignant thing to say. But like to create that world and to have it flow convincingly, not just in sort of a postmodern, uh, brutally. De- again, it's not demystifying. It's about actually what this book does is like the character rejects a certain way of practicing magic, but also the book convinces you by the end that like the model of magic as she understands it is sort of a very believable part of real life. Where we've all had these moments again of being like, "Wow, how did things align this way?" Like that's whether whether they align for bad or for good. It's like that's it's it's just a sense of uncanniness and seemingly meaningful coincidences. So again, it's not like totally. Uh, dispelling the idea of magic or of enchantment, but of giving you a new way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically turbocharged synchronicity. I mean, if you if you read uh, Cosmic Trigger or any of those sort of uh, '60s uh, drug mystic books, it's it's a large part of what they're talking about. This sort of magic, but it's 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 so effective here that it's it's kind of a step beyond. Uh, Connor, we didn't talk about this, but I've got a question for you, knowing a little bit about your background. You have had some experience with English schools. Um, How did that part of this feel to you? Did this feel realistic? Well, okay. So uh, what Pete is referring to is I went to graduate school in the UK, not just in the UK. I went to Cambridge, you know, uh, one of the two sort of... (laughs) highly mystified medieval universities in England. Um, and I was also in, to be frank, one of the fancier, older colleges in Cambridge, uh, Trinity College, where a lot of members of the royal family and also people that you may have heard of, like Isaac Newton or uh, Byron, people like that went. Um, so it's a very history-laden place, very grand. I could go on and on about it. I'm sorry for the humble brag here. but um, yeah, Oh, so, hey, I drug you here, dude. Yeah, so... Cambridge and and Trinity in particular, but really all of Cambridge and Oxford are, of course, the the terminal points for the classic, uh, especially the better 
English boarding schools that are so... So those universities themselves figure in a huge amount of literature um, and produce so many great writers. And then, of course, the boarding schools that get, pe- get people to those universities are also a big part of the English imagination. And this is very much a boarding school story. Um, the school is called Arlinghurst. It's, of course, a single-gender school. Um, and a lot of the sort of the way that class works at the school, because the protagonist is one of the poorer people there in, in principle, um, and she thinks a lot about class and how it works through accents and the bragging and the girls do. So how did I feel about that relative to my own experience? Well, again, I was a graduate student at a university, not a boarding school student like this person, but um, it all kind of fits together in the English system in a particular way. Uh, and I, I will say also that uh, one of my dear friends who's very knowledgeable about uh, YA fiction and writes it, um, taught briefly at Oakham School, which is a very good, uh, you know, all-gender English boarding school. It's not quite Eaton level, but it's it's quite solid. And I visited her out there. Um, so I have been on the grounds of this kind of English school as well. Uh, what did I get from it? I think that, like, sort of the way people talk about class and sort of veer around it, but also sometimes ram into it head on, is very much there. Um, the sort of the way that academics get enshrined, like, of course, academics are very important in the U.S. and all around the world, but, like, there's a certain institutional reverence for the subjects themselves rather than the utility of scoring well on them uh, that is very English. Um, And, again, having not been a boarding school student per se, I I don't have a ton to say about that, but, like, it... If if you want me to like, is this a sort of a convincing addition to the English boarding school genre that, that understands the British educational system? Absolutely. Um, I'm sure a lot of people that I went to Cambridge with who who actually did go to boarding school in the UK would read this and rec- and, and sort of be nodding along. And a lot of them probably would have appreciated reading this because it is it is not a story either about boarding school. What is interesting about it? It's not about boarding school being either the culmination of becoming who you are in the way that Harry Potter is, it's also not a story about boarding school being entirely this evil, alienating place, even though the character has plenty of objections to it. It's just about going through the things that one goes through to grow up and accepting that and even embracing it uh, in all of its sort of unglamorous, realistic, um, concrete way. And by the way, there, there are times in this book... And this, I'm, I'm very away from the boarding school stuff here, but there are times in this book where the character is arguably maybe a little bit too stoic. I mean, her biological father, this is a, this part stood out, I'm sure, to both of us. Uh, at one point, her biological father, who's otherwise very kind to her and protective and gives her a lot of books to read because he's also a big science fiction head, <laughs> he tries to sexually assault her and when he's drunk and uh, she just sort of shrugs it off. Which I thought was maybe a, a, a weird put part to leave in there. Am I getting that wrong, Pete? Did I read that wrong? Or no, no, that's uh, I. Uh, I'm still processing that. <laughs> right, it's a lot to process because the character just sort of accepts it. She's like, "Well, he just wants a connection," uh, and then like they sort of move on. It never happens again. And it's like, wow, that is a very heavy thing to put in here. Because again, if you wanted to take issue with this book, you could say, "Well, this book, you know." It exalts the father despite him doing that and despite him having abandoned his daughter when she was born. Uh, he, uh, yeah, other than that, he comes off quite well in the story, whereas the mother is a literal and figurative witch who is in for some really rough treatment. Um, you could be like, well, that's a strange – because this guy's not great either. But um, okay, I'm rambling weak. now. But he's weak, yeah, and we're, we're meant to read his, his attempt to uh, molest his daughter as sort of a manifestation of his weakness 
and his sadness, which again is like, oh boy, I don't know about that. But again, I love this book. I'm not trying to cancel it for that. I just think it's interesting, yeah. an interesting choice. But um, did I answer your question, Pete? Or Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if I'd call this a, a related story, but something happened to me in Cardiff back in the day that I wanted to talk about that this story really bubbled up into my head about. Um, I was, I was on this, uh, this, uh, college tour where we basically, we went to London for a month and over the course of like 31 days, we saw 28 plays. It was this fantastic experience, especially for somebody who was a theater head like me. Well, one weekend I went to Cardiff with some friends and we were going to catch a specific play out there and just kind of goof off. And I I went to this pub for lunch because I went to pubs for everything. And um, I met this girl there that was just getting off work named uh, Molly. And we ended up like walking around town and, you know, BSing and talking about science fiction for about five hours. And then I was like, hey, we're going to this play. Do you want to come along with me? And she's like, yeah. You know, like I just sort of felt this connection building. It was this great moment. And we get to the boarding house that I'm staying at. And I'm like, hey, come on in. We'll grab my stuff and we'll go. And the guy who runs the boarding house steps out. He's like, young man, we do not do this sort of thing here. And he looked at her and goes, and you should know better, young lady. And she starts crying and runs off. Last I ever saw La Molly. Oh, God. Wow, that's an old school Like, I still think about that, man, because, like, seriously, we were just getting my bag. But, like, how can I I look at Wales the same way again, you know? Well, that was a very sort of British Isles encounter in general. Um, Oh, my God, right? It was like a time machine. Yeah. Wow. What year would this have been? Like, this is almost 1990 or something, right? Yeah, it was 91. <laughs> so within my lifetime. Wow. Um well, that's yeah, I mean, a lot of this book is very smart on the sort of the combination of severity and romanticism that is always oscillating as sort of one of the defining dialectics of various um British Isles tradition. I think the Irish are the best at this because they have that sort of like their culture has a lot of that wild, chaotic paganism in it, um, disciplined by a very Jansenist and severe Catholicism, which is like this completely irreconcilable contradiction that drives a lot of Irish culture, if you ask me. Um, but anyway, uh, wow, that's yeah. And I mean, you just you talked about that sort of a a coincidence uh, throbbing with a certain energy that is very much suited to the way that this book operates. Um, yeah, I can't recommend this book enough. I mean, I, I don't know that. It's the kind of thing I probably would never have picked up if we hadn't done this podcast. And so it's one of those moments where I'm like, I'm really grateful that uh, we're doing this because it's really broadening my horizons in certain ways. Like I've been looking at books like this in bookstores for my entire life. And because I missed out on the age when it would have been most obvious for me to be reading it, um, I (laughs) have to circle back as an adult. But thank goodness. Um, Gosh, folks, honestly, more so than any book that we've read so far, if you have kids in your life you love to read, maybe kids ages 11 to 16, please get them this book. I explicitly recommend this. There's no qualifications for what kind of kid I would give it to. If they like to read it all, give them this book. Yeah, I I think that's, I I completely agree with that. It was a, uh, uh, I I don't know how to put this, but like initially when you picked this book and it was like, well, I just... I just saw it in the bookstore, Pete, and it's shiny, so we should read it. I was like, 
well, it's certainly your turn, man. Like, how bad could it be? And I was, um, I was dumbfounded by how special this book was. I mean, if if serendipity is a thing, if if some sort of practical magic occurred here, I wouldn't be tremendously surprised because this was, uh, this was a, a really personal book to me, and like you don't. Those don't just show up every day. Yeah, and I, I, I'm reading it through a much different lens than you. And I, I, it's funny for me because 15 was the age. It's almost, it's almost a going the opposite direction for me because 15 was the age when I was definitively becoming less nerdy and sort of forced myself to start being a little bit more introverted. And I was doing more and more sports, and I was discovering my, the kind of willpower around things that would, as Pete knows, would come to define a lot of my life for better and, and, and worse. And I was becoming disenchanted um, with things like this book. Like it would never, at age 15, it never would have occurred to me to pick up either this book or um, the books that she's reading. Like I was, I was firmly leaving that enchanted realm of imagination in some ways. I mean, not that I, you know, I've always had an overpowered imagination in certain ways, but like that was the age of, I mean, this character, this character does go through a kind of disenchantment, but for me, the disenchantment was probably more, I felt empowered by the disenchantment I was going through. Um, and looking back on it, I very much overdid it. And it's, it's sort of taken me years to undo some of the choices I made then because, um, I don't know. I had this self-image of who I wanted to be, and I was maybe too good in some ways at achieving it. Um, you can it, take my genre books when you pry them out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> right. So maybe you've been truer to who you are all along, Pete. We just made different choices, man. I, it's it, One of the things that's been fun about this podcast over time is that we are radically different people and finding those points in common as we go through this stuff. It's fun. It's, it's, it's been, it's, it's been a growing experience for me. Yeah. It's been really great. I think, uh, everyone listeners, this is one of those moments where we can assure you that we're not just faking it. We're, we are really enjoying doing this. Uh, even though both Pete and I were scrambling to finish this book this week and we're a few days late <laughs> on this episode. It's Sorry true. about that. Um, I said this before in other places, but we are getting more organized and we're going to start previewing to you soon that we're going to do some months that are themed around uh, a single writer or a single text even and that's going to be something we do going forward so I'm sure some of you'll be glad to hear that because we have been jumping around extremely randomly which has a lot of problems but one of the good things about jumping around randomly is sometimes you go to the bookstore and you discover a weird random book like this that you really like so that's so we will also jump around some i promise we're just going to tighten yes. up the ship a little bit and try to plan more in advance but um this is a good example of the kind of chaos that we've welcomed into our lives with this pod i think chaos has its place right um just and, and the magic system of this book uh <laughs> that all kind of works <laughs> together it's funny how we end up we end up structuring our episodes around like like we sort of realize the things we're talking about are immensely fitting to the text in ways that we didn't even think about going into it, which I guess means that we're hopefully doing this the right way. But uh, absolutely, you know, Connor, I think this is a pretty good place to leave it. I think I think we've gone where we want to go with this episode. What do you think? I think so. No need to break the enchantment any farther. Uh, among others, by <laughs> Joe Walton. Read this book, folks. Get this book for the kids in your life, whether they're your children, your nephews and nieces, your cousins, kids you teach at school. I think the kids in your life that, that are drawn to reading will really enjoy this book. And it will also point them towards some other books. So that's a, that's a bonus to it. 
Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.